This week's episode of the Vel News Podcast is brought to you by Health IQ, a life insurance company that rewards you for getting off the couch and onto your bike, which is something we all love to do. Health IQ has spent years compiling data on healthy folks like us, and they're using that data to provide special rates on life insurance for health-conscious people. That's right, people, people like us. That includes runners, strength trainers, cyclists, even vegans. All you vegans out there. Uh, We know our listeners ride bikes. You may be riding a bike right now. So support the show and check out Health IQ's life insurance rates specifically for cyclists. Get a quote at healthiq.com slash velonews. Again, that's healthiq.com slash velonews. On with the show. Listening to the Vela News podcast, and this is a very special Vela News podcast. Uh, we're coming out to you a little later in the week than normal because uh, we had some sickness run through the staff <laughs> of the Vela News podcast. Um, I'm Fred Dreyer, editor in chief of Vela News. Sitting right next to me is Kaylee Fretz. Hey, Fred. We were we are joined on the line by Spencer Paulison. Spencer, you're in Canada right now. Yeah, guys. You know, I I was thinking, hey, it's the Giro. Ryder Heschel won the Giro fairly recently. Why don't I head up to Canada, see what everyone thinks about the Giro? Um, you know, I'm up here in Whistler because everyone's like, oh, Whistler, everyone likes riding bikes in Whistler. Uh, it's Nobody really wants to talk about the Giro, though. I'm not really, it's a little confusing. They're, they're like wearing really baggy kits and they're on these really heavy bikes that I don't think it would work very well if you're trying to do one of these climbs in the Giro. It would be pretty hard. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're, you're, <laughs> reporting mission to go ride mountain bikes up at Whistler. I see right through that, Spencer. (laughs) I see right through that. I've been following you on Strava. Um, Anyway, we are, Kaylee and I were at the Tour of California last week, and we caught the California crud. And uh, (laughs) so if you hear some coughing and wheezing and sneezing through this episode, um, it's because we're under the weather, which is why we're coming to you a little bit late <laughs> in the week. Um, I don't know. How Had to you? wait till we could stand up. Yeah, how basically. are you feeling, Kaylee? I'm feeling uh, not very well. I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm about 75 Dayquil in today. Yeah. Uh, so if I say anything completely absurd, that would be why. Uh, a little bit loopy at the moment. Yeah. Um, have you ever had toast with, with lung butter? Because <laughs> that's what I've been having all week. That is disgusting. Uh, uh, listeners of the Velo News podcast, you might want to like put some Purell on your eardrums. That's how bad the sickness has been. It might come through your phone. Entirely possible. Um, but anyway, we're gritty individuals for being yeah. here. And so I think that's going to be the theme of this week's episode of the Velo News podcast is grit, grinta. The Grinta. There's a lot of Grinta in this room right now. So much Grinta going on in this room and so much Grinta going on this week because we just finished watching TJ Van Garderen. Not necessarily a man we think of when we talk about gritty. Not really. Not historically. Not historically all that gritty. Oh man, he just put forth a super gritty performance to win stage 18 of the Giro. Um, yesterday, we had a very gritty performance by Cannondale's Pierre Roland, who went on his one millionth attack of the Giro and actually won a stage. Incredible win, actually. Uh, and, and, and they released his power data later, and it was a pretty impressive ride. It was like 400 watts for the last 12 minutes of a 200-kilometer stage. And finally, perhaps the grittiest thing that went on all week, <clears throat> uh, we go, Tom Dumoulin has, I would imagine, uh, stage 16, he had a real gritty chamois. Oh. Uh-huh. A lot, of, 
A lot of grit in that jammy. That's gross. <laughs> That's right. We deprived you of poop jokes uh, for multiple days, but um, listeners should beware because we're going to have some wonderful poopy poopy jokes going on about Tom Dumoulin's very impressive ride on stage 16 uh, to Bormio where he had to run to the side of the road and expel some uh, intestinal contents mm-hmm. before getting back on the bike. Yeah, he did dump a lot of time, though. Oh, he Ooh, dumped so much time. Yeah. Good joke. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so guys, let's get into it. The most recent performance we have to talk about. Stage 18. This was the stage that finished in, oh man, St. Where, 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 where did we finish today? St. Ulrich. St. Ulrich. St. Ulrich, my least favorite cycling saint. <laughs> Got to throw that out there. Or to see. Uh, my most favorite alt- cycling saint. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> yeah, him and St. Saint, Saint Armstrong. Yeah. Um, anyway. This was a hilly stage. What we have four categorized climbs, I believe, on the day. Mm -hmm. Or five. Summit five. Summit finish um, up a Cat One climb. And our man of the breakaways for the last couple days, TJ Van Garderen, made it into the day's breakaway. On the final climb, broke away with Mika Landa. And I don't know about you guys, I expected Mika Landa to totally dust TJ. Oh, But entirely. it was not. That did not end up that way. TJ sprinted around him in the closing meters to win his first Grand Tour stage. It was magnificently timed, actually. Uh, I was not expecting such a finish from TJ Van Garderen. But yeah, he, he kind of cut Landa off on the inside of that right-hand corner yeah. and knew that he had to start the sprint sort of from the front. So he made that move at, a little bit early, sort of 2, 250 to go. And then opened it up, and it's a downhill sprint, so there's just no way to come around him. It was a great move. It was a great move coming on the inside of that corner. And I didn't expect TJ would win that sprint. I really, really didn't. No, I mean, Mika Landa is a man who has great accelerations on the uphills. Perhaps he is a little fatigued. I mean, he did go on the big breakaway stage 16 two days ago. But, you know, TJ was in the breakaway yesterday. And um, let's get into it, guys. I mean, we have to view this TJ performance through the lens of the comments he made Last week, when he, you know, his Grand Tour ambitions were shot, he sat down with our very own Andrew Hood, seemed really bummed out, and basically said he doesn't know if he's a Grand Tour contender anymore. Real low moment for the guy. So what does this win mean for for TJ at this point? Oh, it's redemptive. I mean, it really is. He was pretty low last week. I think that even if you're not a fan of TJ Van Garderen, if you read that interview that Andy Hood did, you can't step away from that not feeling a little bit bad for the guy. I mean, so much pressure on his shoulders, all these really good results as, as, a, as a young man, you know, white jersey at the Tour de France, two top fives at the Tour de France, and then to sort of come into this Giro, have a couple bad days, and get the, the win knocked out of your sails like he did. He needed something like this. He needed a victory. Uh, this is his first Grand Tour stage win. Uh, he needed something like this to sort of pull him back up. It was huge. It was a huge result, I agree. And um, I, I think it, it showed that he has a little more versatility than people give him credit for. Uh, I thought he was descending really well, which I don't know if anyone necessarily would peg him as the world's fastest descender. But I mean, some of those guys in that breakaway, it was a pretty large group. They got gapped on the final descent before the summit or the uphill finish. And uh, credit to TJ for, for riding an aggressive Descent there, hanging with Mikel Landa, and and also being confident enough to take it to him in the sprint, not uh, not firing off a shot too soon on that climb and um, attacking early out of uh, out of fear for for either the sprint or for fear of 
getting caught by the GC group that was really not far behind. Yeah, I mean, he gave it one little move at the end of that climb, Landa pulled him back relatively quickly, and then he was really patient, kind of sat in for a while, and, and then, like we said, timed it absolutely perfectly. I think from a broader perspective that this kind of opens up another debate for me, which is there are a lot of guys like TJ Van Garderen who sort of sit in this, like, third to twelfth kind of GC zone. I wonder how valuable that actually is. Like, how valuable is seventh of the Tour de France? How valuable is fifth of the Tour de France versus these stage wins? Because these are all riders who are incredibly good riders. I mean, TJ proved that today, that when he is given the sort of free reign to go for stage wins, he's the type of, of talent that can win them. Is that more valuable at the end of the day than than another fifth or sixth of the Tour de France? And I would say that honestly, I think it is, and I think it's a lot more exciting for fans. And I think that you know, I think that TJ will gain fans today more so than he ever would from another top ten at a Grand Tour. Yeah, I mean, I think TJ is the prototypical guy uh, that you're speaking of because he's the GC guy who always has one bad day, right? That was always the rub with him. It was like he, if there are, you know eight stages that are going to decide the overall, he will be very strong on seven of them. But there's going to be that one day when he gets sick or he loses pace or something bad happens. And so, um, yeah, I mean, would TJ Van Garderen be better suited as a super domestique who can then also go for um, go for stage wins? It's, it's tough because in today's pro cycling, you know, GC does lead the way just in terms of what we talk about, but also in terms of the motivations of the teams. So, you know, I'm not sure it should. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. It's like, I wonder if anyone has actually gone and done the analysis of, you know, how many, how many, uh, hits the, the sponsors are getting for a sort of consistent, but not winning GC place versus taking a stage win at a major grand tour. And I would, I would, this is just, you know, I'm, I have not run the numbers, but I would think that Actually, Grand Tour stage wins are probably pretty valuable on that front, particularly if they're if you have a rider who's contesting for a lot of them. I mean, I think Roland is is the is the prototypical example here, where Roland's been going for breakaways and going for this the for, for stage wins now for two Grand Tours in a row. Uh, and I I feel like I know more about him, uh, and I feel like well, particularly American fans care more about him because he keeps going for it, even if he only occasionally gets it. Right. Well, I think that also comes down to the motivation of the team and, and the size of the team. You know, for a team like BMC with its big budget, like they are going to have to have a contender for every single Grand Tour. Whereas Cannondale, I think they can look at a uh, Grand Tour like the Giro and just say, you know, Talansky's not racing it. We're going to come in with some wild cards. We're going to animate. We're going to go for stage wins and, you know, unleash Pierre Roland's wrath on the Peloton. So yeah, maybe that, I mean, maybe that is a potential career path for TJ. I guess the question I have for you guys, though, is, is TJ Van Garderen still a Grand Tour contender in our eyes? I'd say he's not. I don't really think that, I mean, I, I know that his tour results in the early years are really impressive, and that does give me pause when I try and consider whether he should take the path of a stage hunter or a man for just the week-long races. But man, it's like you said, Fred, Consistently, there is always a bad day for TJ. It usually comes after the second rest day or the third rest day. And I mean, to be able to put your arms up in the air at a finish line like he did today, that's, that's really valuable. And to, to Kaylee's point, I think a smart sponsor would make hay with that because rather than, you know, middling around in a sixth, seventh, eighth 
place overall position, you're, you're at the top of the podium one big day and um, you can steal the show for a moment. Um, I'll go next. I think that with when viewed through the lens of modern pro cycling, where grand tour wins and grand tour podium finishes are a huge motivating factor, um, I, I think TJ should continue uh, with grand tour ambitions. Maybe not the Giro, maybe not the Vuelta. It's it's obviously tough to you know take a big bet on him with the tour because these last few tours he has had those bad days, but. You know, the guy, you, you can't take away the fact that he's been top five at the Tour twice. Um, he was right there in contention, and I believe that was, what, 2015, until the sight sickness wiped him out. Um, and then it, when you read the interview with him this past week, it does seem like the problem may be a mental and emotional one with him, a confidence issue. And, you know, I mean, those are those are tough ones to eke out, but... That doesn't override the fact that he's a phenomenal physical specimen who can time trial and, you know, survive big, long climbs better than almost anyone in the world. So I haven't given up. I have not given up hope on TJ Van Garderen, Grand Tour contender. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, maybe maybe he just needs a couple Grand Tours of stage hunting to get that confidence to, to turn right. back into a GC rider. I mean, he's still... You know he's not he's not a uh, spring chicken anymore, but he's not exactly old. Dude's twenty eight. Um, you know he's he's a year older than when Chris Froome suddenly found a Grand Tour winning form. Yep. So, huh. um, <laughs> um, anyway, he it's 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 not over for him. You right. know his his GC ambitions are not over, and I do think that at some point a Giro or a Vuelta. That is not as stacked as this Giro because this Giro is crazy stacked this year. Uh, he, you know, he. I think he stands a legitimate shot. He just needs a little bit more confidence coming into it. But uh, for all our 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 chatter here, we can actually we have some audio from TJ after the stage today. I think oh, we yeah. should probably just listen in. See, let's hear what he had to say about coming back for stage wins uh, after after his failed GC hunt. You know, I'm eight years professional, first Grand Tour victory. Um, it's no, it's it was emotional just because I've had you know so many so many trials these past few years. Um, you know, sometimes sometimes things go up or sometimes they go down, and uh, you know today today was definitely up, and hopefully, hopefully I keep that trajectory. I mean, I still would have liked to have fought for GC, but. Um, you know, the stage win, it's its always a great feeling to be able to put your hands in the air. You look so solid uh, today. What happened two weeks before? It's a good question. I'm going to try to figure that out after the race is over. Again, look, he's gritty. He's gritty TJ. I like it. I like this this gritty, hardened TJ building his confidence by dusting dudes like Mika Landa at the Giro. That was awesome. Yeah. I mean, yeah, you can't help but be stoked for the guy, right? I mean, you know, we're all, we're all yes, we are very professional reporters, but we're also American cycling fans. And and seeing TJ come back uh, so emphatically, I mean, I was stoked this morning. Were you stoked? I, I was, was stoked. I was stoked. Yeah. My stoke level was stoke definitely... Was, stoke was like 9 out of 10. Elevated. Uh, any any Canadians have some <clears throat> high stoke out there, Spencer? Man, um, I... Yeah, I actually was watching with a few Canadians come to, se- come to speak of it. Uh, they were just as surprised as I was. I think, you know, it's a combination of surprise and stoke. Uh, the last thing I think I'd add about TJ's GC potential is maybe this stage win is his way to kind of get into a different contract on an, or a new contract on a different team 
and mm. move forward a little because he's been on BC, BMC for so long that to me it feels like he doesn't quite have, it won't work for him to continue trying to ride for GC on BMC just because I, it's like the same thing for many, many years for him. And I think a change of scenery would help. And I think a big stage win like this will put him on the market a little more. And um, maybe that'll be sort of the pathway for him to get back into the role as an overall leader, especially with Richie Port kind of stealing the show a little for BMC when it comes to Grand Tour leadership. Yeah, he's been connected to Trek Segafredo before. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that'd we, be a great rumors. fit for him. Yeah, you know, it's an American squad with maybe not quite enough American riders on it, honestly. Uh, we would love to see some more Americans on that team. Uh, and, and Alberto Contador is, is certainly... Well, keeps threatening to retire at some point. So I think that's a natural fit for him. I, I think Trek would be a great squad for TJ. And then, of course, there's there's the uh, the Cannondale option. But uh, I'm not sure after a stage win that Vodders can afford him. So yep. sorry, JV. <laughs> well, it's a new chapter in the TJ story, ever-evolving TJ story, and uh, it definitely changes things for the future. Moving on, guys, because the general classification got a little shaken up as well today on stage 18, that summit finish, because we had guys numbers four through six in GC. That's Domenico Pozzovivo, uh, Ilner Zakarin, and uh, Thibaut Pino attack out of that front group in the final kilometers. And uh, numbers one through three, Dumoulin, Nibali, and Quintana. Just kind of watch them go. Hot take. Hot take. All right. Hot take. Uh, all right. So, well, so there was, there was some some chatter between Dumoulin and Quintana after the finish here. Yeah. Uh, they, they, they came across the line and they, they got on their warm up bikes, which are like three or four feet apart from each other. And Ooh. you could see, you could see Dumoulin ask him, uh, smack talk I, I, time. well, it wasn't really smack talk so much as there was some smack talk when they weren't facing each other. There was definitely some smack talk, but they, they Dumoulin asked Nairo, like, why didn't you pull? He, had, he did a little like, like fingers walking thing, like why did you know why didn't you go? Uh, and Nairo just sort of shook his head and, and turned away. You know, obviously Dumoulin wants Nairo to pull in that situation. He wants Nibali to pull in that situation. Uh, it's in his best interest to keep, you know, fourth through seventh as far away on the GC as possible. I honestly think that it may be in Quintana and Nibali's best interest to bring those riders closer. If they're confident in their ability to maybe t- take some time back later, uh, and that would be mostly tomorrow's stage, uh, then having more riders within attacking distance of Dumoulin works in their favor because Dumoulin then has to follow any of those top seven riders. Uh, you know, before, Dumoulin really only had to follow Nibali and Katana. That's what we saw today. Now, we have Pozzovivo in sixth, only 207 down. If Pozzovivo goes, Dumoulin has to follow. So if, if you're trying to isolate and then attack the hell out of Tom Dumoulin, you want as many riders as close to the podium as possible. Granted, it's a, it's a very, uh, it's a dangerous tactic, perhaps, because there, it is entirely possible that some of those riders could lose, that Quintana or Nibali could, could lose their podium spots. But I think that uh, I think they could potentially work. I think that that they're going to come out guns ablazing against Dumoulin in the, in the remaining stages. And Dumoulin, as we saw today, is going to be totally isolated and might be in trouble. I like that take. Um, I like that take a lot. And um, in speaking of those guys potentially losing their podium positions, I also really liked what Tom Dumoulin said after the stage. Yeah. He was just not pulling any punches. He said it would be nice if they lost their podium spots with that behavior. He said, (laughs) he was just not at all 
happy with these guys that for just sitting on and watching them. He says, I really hope they end up losing their podium places in Milano. It would make me really happy. <laughs> but he's, uh, yeah, I think isolation is the real watchword, Kaylee. I think you nailed it on the head because Dumoulin has just not had any of his Sunweb teammates with him in these high mountain stages. And meanwhile, uh, Quintana has had guys from Movistar with him. Often Nibley has at least one rider from Bahrain Merida. So the danger is there. And honestly, I would say the biggest danger man right now, apart from um, Quintana and Nibley, of course, is Thibaut Pino, who can actually ride a pretty decent time trial. So with him at a minute 36 behind now in the overall, um, if he collected a little more time in the next couple of climbing stages, and then had the time trial of his life, who knows? It's definitely, he's a threat. Yeah, and he's been well supported by Sebastian Reichenbach, who's had basically the super domestic ride of his life. Uh, so he, so Pino has had a, a teammate up there with him that could potentially be used over the next couple of days. Um, yeah, I agree with you, but I also think, you know, Quintana didn't pull because he was hosed. He looked really <laughs> tired. He went on that attack with uh, Wiener Anacona earlier uh, in the stage, early on the climb, and went nowhere. Anacona blew up. He was, you know, at seven, eight seconds before Reichenbach brought him back. And I just don't think that he was on a particularly good day. So maybe it was tactics, but I really think it was just sort of a general fatigue. And uh, Dumoulin was probably the strongest guy in that group. Um, yeah, I mean, he could get he could get isolated for sure. But at this point, I think Dumoulin is strong as like three riders at this point. He looks, really <laughs> he looks awesome. He looks so good. He looks like a race winner. Yeah. He certainly does look like a race winner. Um, okay, well, we need to we need to um, drill down into this scenario a little bit more because, you know, Spencer, I just got to think that some Cat 3 advice may have changed the outcome of this. So let's do it. Let's ask a Cat 3. Okay, in this scenario, I will be Dumoulin and you will be Quintana. And the question is, what do you do? Numbers four through six in GC go up the road and you're sitting there with one, two, and three waiting what to do. Ask a cat three, Spencer, what do you do? Let's see, if I'm Quintana, I mean, my first gut instinct is to say that Quintana totally nailed the cat three tactic because every, everyone who's a cat three knows that you shouldn't like pull through and spend any energy. You got to save your energy, right? I mean, that's what you, mm. that's what you got to do. It's, it's hard racing. And, but I want to say, I think actually as a cat three, I would have advised him to just, um, you know, just keep pulling and attacking because, you know, everybody says you're the best climber, right? So, I mean, that's what you're supposed to do. You just climb and climb and climb and it should work. I mean, it's not like, it's not like Dumoulin would be able to follow you or anything like that, right? Mm, interesting Cat 3 advice. Uh, as a Cat 3 being Tom Dumoulin, my first thing to do would be to lean to uh, Vicenza Nibali and be like, wow, Sebastian Reichenbach is looking great attacking up the road there because I would have obviously gotten him mistaken with Thibaut Pino. Uh, then I'd probably ask people, wait, are you sure those are that's fourth through sixth place? You sure? No, no, no. I think that... Uh, I, think I think that's that, the Masters field. Yeah, no, that's yeah. the Masters field. They just caught us and they're going ape, ape shit. And that was Ask a Cat 3. Okay, guys, the second most wacky thing that happened this weekend other than TJ Van Garder and winning a stage, maybe in terms of wackiness, this is number one. We need to talk about stage 16, the big queen stage, the double Stelvio day, finishing in Bormio. 
now will forever be known as um, Stage Brown, <laughs> the Tom Dumoulin poopy stage. Um, we were all watching this stage and I'm sure had very different reactions when we saw the pink jersey group heading towards the base of the Umbrail Pass and then Tom Dumoulin just veer off to the side of the road violently, jump off his bike, throw off his jersey and just squat, squat one out uh, on the shoulder of the road. Uh, Spencer, first of all, what was your initial reaction? Um, my initial reaction was, wow, that must feel amazing because (laughs) if you've ever been in that position and I definitely have, um, nothing feels better than taking care of that business. And my take is eh, maybe that's why he climbed so well on that final climb and was able to descend so well is because he finally started to feel like, you know, well, took a little weight off. It's just so light. It's true. Uh, when I saw it happen, my, my initial thought was, oh my God, did a bee fly down his jersey? Have you ever had that where like the bee flies in your open jersey and you're just like, ah, ah, get away, ah, start swatting. Um, I was very impressed with his climbing after that too because I thought, oh, this is going to be the end of him because usually when you got the bad tummy and it's coming out of one end or both ends, like that means calories are not getting absorbed. And so I was like, uh-oh, Tom Dumoulin just emptied his tank and now literally there's going to be nothing left in the tank. So, uh, yeah, I mean, amazing comeback from the side of the road poopy. Uh, how about you, Kaylee? I mean, I think you guys covered it. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> covered it in something. I, I mean, I was, <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't really know what to think. It took me a second to realize what was going on. Uh, and then I was a little bit concerned for the, uh, the fan. There was a couple fans nearby. Yeah, that's true. Uh, and then, you know... Uh, it, it brought to mind the the famous incident with Greg LeMond way back in the day, where Pooping he in a hat. Yep, where he asked his his domestique for his cycling cap, pooped in the cycling cap, and then kept on riding. Uh, you know, so we've seen it done before. We'll see it done again at some point. We heard an amazing story yesterday from uh, Velo News training columnist <clears throat> Trevor, who one year was at Cascade and said that Oscar Sevilla executed a like mid ride poop off the bike while like still riding. Amazing. Yeah. <laughs> Do you think they have to pick uh, up amazing. after him, though? Like a dog, you know? How you're supposed to pick up after a dog? Do you think that kind of they'd expect Sunweb to do that? Um, we we all know that Team Katusha would not have done that ah. after uh, their hijinks at the Tour of California. I was about to say that. <laughs> yeah, where Team Katusha uh, dropped all of their black water out of their rented RV uh, into a parking lot in California. Sorry. Oh, man, sorry about that. <laughs> yeah, in Canada, uh, in Canada, you would say, sorry. Do we have any poop headlines or poop jokes that we're not, um, that we just didn't get to on the site? I mean, I know that this is several days old and um, I'm sure the internet and Twitter is just to- totally sick of talking about poor Tom Dumoulin and his side of the road number two. But um, I, you know, I, I, I was about ready to call it the deuce truce because to me it seemed like that front group didn't nuke it as hard as they could have. And, um, you know, if they if they had gotten off their bikes, then it definitely would have been a deuce truce. Mm-hmm. Um, Spencer, I believe you used the term Dumoulin dump some time. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, dump, dumping time. One of my friends came up with the nickname of Dudu Moulin. It's hard to say. Dudu Moulin. Dudu Moulin. Yeah. It's all right. That's quality. Yeah. It seems like this Jiro, we've all, the cycling world has been on the quest to come up with a better nickname for Tom Dumoulin, whose his current nickname is like the Butterfly of Maastricht. Terrible. Yeah. That's awful. We could call him Deuces Wild. Ooh, nice. <laughs> 
Uh, okay, so let's get on to the ever-present debate when any one of these ridiculous things happened that we've already had two of so far in this Giro. Uh, should they have waited? I hate this debate. This is the dumbest debate. I hate this debate. So let's have it. Let's debate it anyway. So yeah, so whenever one of these things happen, you like you watch Twitter and Twitter just explodes with all these people who are like, oh, it's unsportsmanlike, blah, blah, blah. I hate it. I hate this debate. So this this one in particular, here's my here's my take on this. Uh, this was a call of nature. This is a, yeah. a bodily function. Oh yeah. Which in my mind is absolutely no different from like a bonk or something like that. Do you wait for the pink jersey when he bonks because he didn't eat enough and his, or because you know his his insides are not moving glycogen to his legs as efficiently as possible? No, you do not wait for the pink jersey when that happens. Just like when a pink jersey has a doo doo problem, a natural issue, you do not wait. Do, and do I just wait. I think that the bar for waiting has been set so damn low. It's like. Like literally anything can happen to a race leader and all the all the fans of that rider I think that they should wait every single time. I I just I think that the bar for waiting should be set much 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 higher. It should be like acts of god, you know, really bad mechanicals. I'm trying to think what else what, I don't even know what else what else would qualify. Uh maybe a really bad crash caused by something other than that rider, yeah. you know, the moto thing, perhaps. A wild I animal. That, Maybe a wild animal causing a crash. Wild animal. Oh, yeah. Wild animal. Yeah, something out of the leader's control. A free-range that's the cow. Only, that's the only thing that, that qualifies for me. Some sort of free-range Well, I thought cow. that's what the next thing was going to be, was like, at, you know, midway up the Umbrella Pass, like a Yeti was going to come out of the snow <laughs> and just, like, rip Ilner Zacharin's head off and be like, oh, do well, do we wait then? Um, I, I'm with you, although I do hearken back to the conversation we had after the moto crash, which was like, you know, oh, maybe you wait if it's the pink jersey. So naturally cycling just threw us just this curveball a week later to be like, okay, well, here it is, the pink jersey. He's having problems. I do wonder what would happen if like Tom Putumalin like literally rode around in that front group and was just like, guys, I got to go number two so bad. Any chance you could wait for me? And I do think the other interesting curveball in this is that just the day before, Dumoulin had waited for Nairo Quintana, who crashed. Um, and, you know, had to get a bike change. It wasn't a, a catastrophic moment, but, you know, there was definitely waiting going on. And so the the do you wait type thing is a tired debate, and it's definitely going to be one that we have more of in the future. But, yeah, I don't know. I could see... I could see a couple scenarios in which, yeah, maybe the front group pulls over and is like, oh, let this guy, let this guy finish up his no. business. No, he, right. sh- he should have been more careful with with his nutrition. Come on, I mean, it's it's a it's a no, 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 no waiting for bodily functions. Man, we've all we've all had the uh, you know exploding butt problems before. <laughs> we've all we've all had that uh, gritty chamois. And I would expect them to attack me mercilessly. If okay, that ever happened to me. Well, I guess we know it's going to happen on the next lunch ride, <laughs> Spencer. Any, any exploding chamois takes? Well, you know, one thing that this actually reminds me of, uh, and Kayla, you'll probably remember this better than I, but there was some instance in a Grand Tour recently where Chris Froome kind of did a sort of fake nature break type situation where oh, he, yeah. he kind of like slowed guys up and made them stop because he sort of pretended he needed to pee, but it wasn't exactly like a logical time for it to happen. Uh, do you remember no. that? Yeah, so that was actually the that was the Von Two stage. It got swept under the it got swept under the rug because yes. uh, they later ran into the back of a motorcycle. But yeah, no, <clears throat> I wrote a 
I wrote a column about that at the time because I thought it was total bullshit. Anyway, yeah, that that was a, that was a perfect example of how this this sort of thing could definitely be taken advantage of because Froome pulled over on the side of the road. He's wearing the yellow jersey uh, because his teammates crashed, which was an absolute abuse of power in my mind because you know he he essentially he forced other riders to make a decision between coming across as unsportsmanlike and you know essentially wasting the run up to Von Tu just so Froome could have more lieutenants, which I think is total bullshit. Uh, Alejandro Valverde was on the front at the, at that moment and was livid and was you know hands up in the air swearing in Spanish all sorts of stuff, uh, but they still slowed down because it was the yellow jersey. Uh, that's a perfect example of how this thing can be taken way too far, uh, quite easily I think, and, and used used uh, used incorrectly. Yeah, that, those, that would be poopy ethics right there. That'd be poopy for ethics. sure. <laughs> oh man. Well, you know, before we get on to our uh, next topic today. Kaylee, I don't know about you. I'm I'm not feeling so hot right now. Um, I there was a, there were a couple moments there a few days ago when I thought literally I may be like bedridden or like <laughs> knocking on death's door, and I, it started to get me to think about Health IQ, our uh-huh. sponsor today, because Health IQ is the life insurance company that works specifically with fit people. Mm-hmm. And as a fit person, I was like, man, I might need be, need some life insurance because <laughs> I feel awful. I feel like my body is eating itself. Yeah, Health IQ, they 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 have run the run the statistics, run looked at the data and have figured out that healthy people are uh, less likely to kick the bucket and so therefore you get lower life insurance rates, which is pretty awesome. Uh, yeah, that said this week I definitely would not qualify <laughs> would not qualify for the Health IQ this week. So I will wait till next week to go to healthiq.com slash velonews to get my quote. Yeah, hopefully our immune systems like make a speedy recovery from this because yeah, I don't also do not qualify for the health IQ, healthy individual person at the moment. Nope. <laughs> anyway, uh, yeah, check out Health IQ's website and uh, we thank them for sponsoring today's episode of the Velonews podcast. So moving on, guys, um, you know, he, he, he limited the losses though. Lost 218. <clears throat> Anyone expect him to lose more? Anyone think that uh, he was just going to like, I don't know, start taking on water and we'd never see him again? Honestly, if he had lost that amount of time on that stage without having any problem at all like that, I don't think I personally would have been that shocked. Knowing how hard that climb is, how good Quintana and Nibali can be on the climbs, plus that crazy descent to the finish, I, I would have thought, okay, that's about, you know, par for the course. Dumoulin's just climbing so well right now. He's looking so, so lean, um, which is kind of a little bit of a huh for me. Um, but, I mean, credit where credit's due, he's just climbing out of his skull, and I think, I think he should... Uh, and the team said very, very much the same as what I'm saying, where they were, they were happy with the overall kind of how he was able to fight back on that stage w- without letting the, the incident... Um, really torpedo his chances. Yeah, I mean there was a minute there, there was a brief period there when I thought that he was that he was done, you know, because I, I very much like you saw the uh, the poo incident and and just assumed that a bonk was imminent at that point, you know, like your your system is obviously not working properly. Uh, but he managed to pull through. Uh, we should note as well, just returning briefly to the weight debate that Dumoulin himself said that they shouldn't have waited for him after mm-hmm. the finish. So uh, in the weight debate, I think that that pretty much settles it. When the guy who was not waited for says, yeah, it's okay that they didn't wait for me. That's W-A-I-T weight, not W-E-H-I-E-H-T debate. Thanks, thanks for the clarification, Spencer. That's 
necessary. Oh, poor guy <laughs> dropping dropping weight on the side of the road. Uh, anyway, I think I think that will be the um, defining moment of this year's Giro, which will be kind of a ridiculous one. But yeah, that was the moment Tom Dumoulin could have lost the Giro, and he stuck it out there in gritty shorts and just made it happen. All right, guys, moving on. We need to talk about the other fun story that happened this week. Stage 17 uh, from Tirano to Canazé. Uh, Cannondale's Pierre Roland takes the stage win. And I don't know. I don't know about you guys, but I think we can finally say the Cannondale curse is over. Curse is over. You know, after the Talansky win in California, you know, he did not win the overall there, which I know he was focusing on. But he is building for the Tour de France. So that's not too surprising. Um and sort of some some strange tactical things there. After the anyway, after the Talansky stage win, and then this stage win at the Giro, I do believe the Candle Curse is is now behind them, yeah. uh, which is which is good. You know, we it was two years. It was it was seven hundred and twenty eight days, I think it was, in between uh, in between who's counting World Tour victories. Who's counting? Uh, yeah, no, no one's counting. No one's counting. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it was seven hundred something days in between those two World Tour victories. Uh, that was a long, long, long time, and I you know. So the team was they sort of pretended that they didn't care about this but you, you, whenever you have a bunch of athletes these are these are competitive people they don't like being known as the team that never wins anything so i think it's good for morale at that squad and it would not surprise me to see uh, that confidence boost show up in, in the next couple of races as well yeah i mean i think we have to give credit where credit is due to pierre roland and the entire giro team for going on the tack just really frequently during this Giro. Um, it seemed like every single day that there was a breakaway, there was a Cannondale rider in that breakaway, oftentimes Pierre Roland. And, you know, <laughs> we would sometimes laugh about Pierre Roland's decisions of attacking because a lot of times he would be like the guy that would go first um, when, you know, the group was starting to splinter or when the GC guys were, were attacking. We saw that on the Mount Etna stage when he went, you know, painfully early into the stage. Um, some of his moves were a little bit questionable, but that's the thing is it's like you don't get to win unless you go for it. Yeah, some of those early moves. I mean, the, the issue there was he was still trying to attack off the front of like a GC group, yeah. you know, and, they, and they, those guys just finished too too fast to ever really stay away. Um, this At this point, he's 25-something minutes down. You know, the GC guys don't care about him, so he can get in those early moves, and, that, and that's really what – they were always waiting for this last week, I think, to, to get that stage win. I think he was giving it a go early, just test the legs, but this last week was always uh, – what it was all about. And we also saw Joe Dombrowski on the attack today, yep. on Thursday. Um, not quite enough to hang on for the finish. Uh, was was eventually dropped by uh, Van Garderen and Landa. But it's good to see Dombro back at the front of affairs because he, he did have a pretty rough spring. He had some illness and some injury and um, – just th- things did not go as as hoped this spring. So this is really a a return to form for for Dombro. I yeah, the, it's nice to see Roland finally get this win. It has been a really long time. He's I, I totally agree in terms of he he's not a very patient racer. I guess is what I would add. And I feel like that kind of that that overall sort of approach sometimes gets reflected in how the other Cannondale guys tend to race. Where in general they seem to like those kind of long-range, risky attacks. And yeah, maybe they'd be better served by picking and choosing a little more. And um, we certainly saw that that succeeded with Roland on that kind of lumpy transition stage that really was quite hard coming after 
the Queen stage on Tuesday. So I guess I have a couple questions out of this. The first of which is, you know, we touched on this earlier in the episode, but the uh, debate of whether to try and build GC teams for Grand Tours versus building stage hunter teams for Grand Tours. Like, should Cannondale try to build a GC team for races like the Giro or the Vuelta? Or is this the, um, you know, this stage hunting team, this aggressive team, is this a role that we as fans are comfortable with? Uh, you know, for Cannondale in particular, because they're, budget is so slim compared to some of their competitors. I think that it's a it's a pretty good strategy. You know, they're not they're just not going to be able to produce real GC threat in multiple grand tours. So, you know, Talansky, Andrew Talansky really wants to go for the overall at the Tour de France. I think that's a a noble goal. You know, a great ride for him is to pop into maybe the top 5. A good ride is into the top 10. Um, they're not trying to win the thing. They're not they're not too far off with their Giro tactic, which is essentially to win Davide Formolo the the best young rider jersey, which he's currently in third place in that in that competition. Um, but for teams like this that don't have the financial firepower to hire a whole bunch of really big GC names, I think it's a great strategy. I think it's a great way to get fans behind your team because everyone loves to cheer the winners. You know, uh, I think that that throwing a bunch of strong riders, but maybe not race winning riders, at races like the Giro is is perfect because, like I said, if you're a Canadell fan, you've had a lot to cheer for in the last couple of weeks, and that maybe wouldn't have been the case if Pierre Rolan was going for a GC overall and was sitting in eighth right now. Like, I, who really cares about that? Yeah, the only the only thing I'd say is that it's probably a little bit too ambitious to have Tolansky aiming for Tour de France GC just due to the fact that that race is so stacked anymore. Chris Froome, the whole... It's, I think that they would be better served having him continue to focus on the Vuelta for a GC race um, and, and aim for a tour stage win because that would have a huge, huge impact. But this does get back to our original question of, you know, a stage win for someone like Andrew Chilean, or excuse me, uh, this gets back to our original question, stage win for TJ Van Garderen versus eighth place on GC, what's, what's more valuable? In the tour, it's definitely a stage win, I'd say. I think unless you're pretty confident that Talansky can win the Vuelta, then eighth place at the Tour is still more valuable. That's actually interesting. That's an interesting little. Uh, you could do that that sort of uh, value math as well because the Vuelta is is just so much smaller in terms of media coverage. Uh, I would I would wager that that you know someone at Cannondale has done the math there and, and figured out that yeah anything in the top ten of the Tour is probably more valuable than anything except for a win at the Vuelta. Mm. Moneyball. I guess the other the other question Moneyball. I have, yeah, Moneyball. <laughs> Moneyball. I love that phrase. Um, the other question that we that I have then is, does this change the way we talk about Cannondale? I mean, up uh, throughout the um, short history of the Bell News podcast, we have talked about Cannondale as the the team we hate to love, love to hate. You know, the plucky underdogs, full of Americans that always seems to get fourth place. Um, I mean, can we start like? just puffing our chests out and bragging about how good they are or like we, like how do we, how does this change the way in which we talk about this team no no okay <laughs> i mean i'd love to I, I would love to say that all of a sudden Cannondale is now every race they enter is going you know they're they're a force to be reckoned with yeah. but they're they're still going to be you know they're they're grabbing they're grabbing wins at the margins and that's just the reality of 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 budgets and the, and the way that that team is built and and there's just no there's no way around it when you can't when you can't go buy the three, four million dollar uh, 
million dollar riders. That's just the way it is. And and maybe that's that's okay. Maybe we can maybe we can cheer for for those wins on the margins because they they come a little bit less frequently, but when they do come, they are all the sweeter. Mm-hmm. Well, as uh, listeners of the Vel News podcast can uh, can attest to from our interview with Jonathan Vaders the other day, you know, if you have a lot of money and you want to become an equity partner in this team, uh, we know a guy. We do know a guy. We know we a put guy. you in touch. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, guys, uh, we need to do an outro question. And what a better question, what a better topic to focus on than Tom Dumoulin and his nature break. So my question to you is, what is the worst nature break story you have had? Well, just nature, uh, just like nature emergency you've had while riding. Anybody? A natural emergency. Natural emergency. Oh, I'll start off. Okay. So uh, when I was living in uh, Brooklyn, I um, was out drinking beers one night and um, woke up in uh, Greenpoint and had to ride my bike back to my house. Woke up, drank some coffees, was riding back to Fort Greene where I lived, and nature hit me so hard on the way. <laughs> and the, um, the bathrooms at uh, McCarran Park were locked, and I had to ride up to a staff person who was like raking leaves and just beg them to open the bathroom for me. And it all worked out. <laughs> That's the successful nature calamity story that I choose to share on the bike. And I rode and I rode my bike home after that feeling really good. I've definitely had I had nature call on a mountain bike ride in Tucson, Arizona one time. Mm. And definitely like just just there's just general cactus concern is Ooh, really is yeah. really what the, what the issue was. There wasn't it wasn't really a calamity. It was no big deal, you know. I had all the right stuff in my pack. That's good. But uh just general cactus concern. We were there's a lot of cactus about. Mm. Spencer? Yeah, I similar to Kaylee, I guess I was doing a mountain bike ride. It was uh like late in the afternoon, so kind of a weird time for this problem, but um <laughs> It was uh, up on the Monarch Crest Trail though, so way, way Ooh. high alpine. And um, I was like, well, for starters, really scenic place for this sort of thing to happen. So kind of <laughs> best case scenario in that respect. It's not like some dingy place in New York City or whatever. But um, uh, I was worried about it because I was like, well, it's like the high alpine and this is probably like bad for the ecosystem or whatever. So I found a stick and I like dug a little hole and just did my best to kind of like, you know, leave no trace, so to speak. So, and then the ride ended up being really nice after I took care of that. Like I said earlier in the podcast, it's a good feeling. It's admirable, Spencer. Well done. I just have the best visual of you on the Monarch Crest. I have the worst visual of you on the Monarch Crest. <laughs> thousand foot peaks everywhere. Just Spencer digging a hole. Oh my God. Well, we would love your feedback on what we talked about today. Well, most of what we talked about today. You can email us at webletters at competitorgroup.com. We'll also post links to the stories we talked about today on velonews.com. Subscribe to the Velonews podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play. And while you're there, please leave us a comment and a rating. Become a fan of Velonews on Facebook at facebook.com slash magazine And follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash News. The News podcast is produced by News, which is owned by the competitor group. The thoughts and opinions expressed on the Velonews podcast are those of the individual. And as always, we leave you with the Brooklyn Boogaloo Blowout playing the Bernard Purdy Classic Soul Drums.